Hello, and welcome to Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you are a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. If you work for a living, this podcast is for you. It contains important information that your perspective, current, or former employer does not want you to know, including the basics of your rights and obligations in the workplace, as well as practical tips on how to level the playing field regarding issues that arise every day on the job. Each future episode will feature an expert on the workplace or a guest who may tell us about his or her particular occupation. Hello and welcome to episode number 13 of Freaking Out About Work. I call this episode, How You Feeling? In this episode, we are going to explore part of the employment laws that affect people who have medical problems that impact their ability to work. Unlike areas of law like age discrimination or sex discrimination, employees who have the misfortune of becoming sick, getting injured, or needing to care for family members with medical problems, there are a variety of different employment laws that come into play in that situation. Employees who are affected by medical issues have to carefully navigate through this maze of employment laws. And today, I invited John Allison to join us and discuss three of those laws that are sometimes applicable to employees with medical problems. Those three laws are the Family and Medical Leave Act, a.k.a. the FMLA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, a.k.a. the ADA, and workers' compensation laws. We will focus on the FMLA and the ADA because they are the most common laws applicable to employees who encounter sickness and illness, and they apply regardless of whether the sickness and illness occurred at work. John Allison is a graduate of the University of Michigan hmm, and earned his Juris Doctor degree from the University of Cincinnati College of Law, where he served as editor-in-chief of the Law Review. That's where the smart people in law school reside, is on the Law Review, someplace that I was never invited. Mr. Allison is an experienced litigator who practices in all areas of employment law, including discrimination, harassment, retaliation, breach of employment contract, non-competes, and wage and hour law. He practices in federal and state trial and appellate courts and in federal and state agencies and commissions. John has achieved numerous successful results for his clients over the years, and he also lectures on employment law. Hopefully he won't lecture us too much today. John lives in Mount Lookout with his wife and two children. So John Allison, welcome to the show. Thanks, Randy. Good to be here again. So, Johnny, we're going to talk about medical problems today, not from the uh, medical doctor standpoint, from but from the legal doctor standpoint. You got your Juris Doctorate. You're a JD, not an MD. So let's start with an overview of these three laws that I mentioned. Right. The, so the Family Medical Leave Act that you mentioned earlier, that was passed in 1993 under the Clinton administration. 
and it was put in place to help families balance work and family. It provides for 12 weeks, 12 work weeks of unpaid job-protected leave per year. The Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in 1990 under the first George Bush administration. Uh, it's got a lot of different titles, but Title I is employment, which we'll be talking about today. And it was put in place to make sure that uh, employees were not discriminated against on the basis of disability at work. Workers' compensation laws have been around for a while. Uh, they are in place to make sure that somebody who gets injured at work has some protection and get can get paid some benefits while they're out and recovering. Yeah, I think the workers' compensation laws started like in the Woodrow Wilson uh, administration, like in the 1915 area, I think. I want to say Ohio was 1913, but hopefully nobody will Google that and prove me wrong. Anyway... John, so let's uh, take these in order. Let's talk about the FMLA first. Who is covered by the FMLA? Right. What, what types of employees and uh, does it apply to large employers only, smaller employers, things like that? Right. So different from the other discrimination laws like age, race, gender, where you've got protection immediately uh, and you can you know, be employed by a smaller employer. Under the FMLA, uh, to qualify for leave, you have to have worked for the employer for 12 months before you qualify. And you have to have worked at least 1,250 hours during the 12 months prior to the start of your leave. Also, smaller employers are not covered at all, you have to work uh, where at least 50 employees are employed within a 75-mile radius. So it doesn't cover all employees. Uh, you mentioned 1,250 hours. You know, my Finneytown math tells me that's about 25 hours per week. So if you're an employee who only works like 15, 20 hours a week and you get sick, you cannot take advantage of the FMLA? That is correct. Wow. Okay. Um now, what type of leave is available for those, you know, those part-time employees who work at least 25 hours and, you know, full-time employees? What kind of leaves are available? So you get 12 work weeks of unpaid leave, and that's important. It's unpaid um, in a 12-month period for one of the following reasons. For birth of a child and caring for the child, for placement, uh, you know, an adoption or foster care, um, to deal with your own serious health condition or to deal with serious health condition of a family member, uh, could be a spouse, a child, or a parent. It is not a parent-in-law, and if it is a child, they have to be under 18 unless they're incapable of self-care. It also applies if you're caring for somebody in the military who's got a serious health condition. Hmm. You get more than 12 weeks, you get 26. Okay, everybody else can take up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave. Is that right? Correct. Now, what about spouses and other family members of an employee? Yeah, so um, if you've got two individuals who are working at different employers, they would both, and they're covered, 
they would both potentially be eligible for 12 work weeks if you've got two uh, employees who are working at the same uh, employer and it's for like a pregnancy or something like that and the birth of a child, the, the employer can actually limit uh, and make them the 12 weeks combined between the two parents. Now, not everybody has to take off every day of the week. So how does that work? Do you have to take like 12 consecutive weeks or a week at a time? How does that work? How can you use your 12 weeks? Can you kind of mix and match? Right. So actually for the birth of a child, you do have to use the 12 weeks unless you get permission. It has to be continuous. Mm -hmm. There are two types of leave under the FMLA. One is continuous leave, which is where you go out for birth of a child or surgery and recovery, and then you come back and it's just a continuous leave. But the FMLA also allows for what's called intermittent leave, and that's where an employee would take uh, leave in chunks of time, for example, half a day, a number of hours. It doesn't have to be continuous, but it adds up to 12 work weeks of time within a 12-month period. So, for example, if an employee goes out, has a car accident, is out for surgery, and then they come back, but they've got some follow-up treatments, those follow-up treatments would be covered under the FMLA. Um, if it is something, a situation like that, um, where you can schedule the follow-up appointments then you're supposed to work with the employer to do something that's practical for both parties. What uh, employers really don't like, uh, because intermittent leave can be a disruption, what they really don't like is where somebody's taking intermittent leave and it's not predictable. Uh, but the FMLA covers that. So, for example, somebody's got a condition where they've got where they get migraine headaches and it's not predictable, you can't schedule it, you could call in before your shift and take FMLA leave for that situation. You could have another condition that, uh, where it's unpredictable, and the FMLA allows for that, and employers don't like it, but it is what it is. Yeah, this is not one of employers. I'd say this is not on the top of their list of favorite laws, Right. Right, because a lot of employers get concerned that an employee could just use that, uh, you know, intermittent leave and call off whenever they want, but they're not really suffering from the condition. But there's really, it's very difficult um, to do anything about it. Yeah, well, well you, you have to do you have to do something though. What kind of paperwork uh, does an employee have to fill out in order to get this intermittent leave? If you're saying somebody can take off maybe once a week for uh, a condition, uh, can they just do that or do they need to get some kind of approval process? Right. So um, whether you're asking for continuous leave or intermittent leave, the employee basically notifies the employer the type of leave they're going to need, and then the employer gives them FMLA paperwork for them to take to their doctor and have it filled out. And, you know, the doctor can say this person's going to need X amount of leave during X time frame. It, and, and a lot of times what you'll see in the FMLA paperwork is the doctor provides like an estimate, like this person might need 
uh, you know, an average of a day off every two weeks in connection with flare-ups of this condition. And you do see that in the FMLA paperwork. Now, everybody's concerned about money. Do you get paid while you're out on FMLA leave? So even though FMLA is unpaid leave, if the employee has some accrued PTO, they can opt to use that. And actually, a lot of times what you'll see is employees will, they'll take their FMLA leave and they'll, you know, they'll use up all their PTO. And then obviously once they're, they're out, then there becomes pressure to try to return to work because it is difficult to be out without a paycheck. So people like to try to take FMLA leave, but come back before they are not getting a paycheck. Yeah, I think most people can. Do, most people do not have twelve weeks of accrued PTO. Exactly, right? They have a week or two weeks or three weeks. Exactly. So if right? they can get back, they're going to try to get back. And I guess theoretically, if you're out on continuous leave for twelve weeks, you might be able to avail yourself of short-term disability if the employer has short-term disability insurance. Right. So if you're out for you know, uh, some sort of illness or injury, and you qualify for short-term disability, uh, you should apply for it and try to receive it while you're out. And I, anytime somebody calls me, I always try to explore, you know, what, even beyond the FMLA, what leave policies does your employer have? You know, what leave policies do they have that potentially pay you? Could be short-term disability, um, and some employers have other types of leave policies that will pay for absence. So what happens when you're out? Can your employer replace you? Uh, what is the employee entitled to when they return from FMLA leave? When the employee comes back from FMLA leave, they are entitled to be put back in the exact same job that they left and or something substantially equivalent uh, in terms of pay benefits, and basic duties. And that's within 12 weeks. So if the employee can return within 12 weeks, they're going to go back to their same job. Additionally, um, benefits that they had prior to going out on leave have to remain in place. They can't lose their seniority. If you've got a situation where you, you you qualify for a perfect attendance bonus, you know, the FMLA leave can't be counted against you. You come back after 12 weeks, you still get the perfect attendance bonus. Okay. And can you be fired while you're out on um, medical leave if you're out, you know, on an approved FMLA absence? This is a question that I get from uh, consultations relatively often, and there is some confusion about this, um, employees tend to think, if I'm out on FMLA, that's absolute protection. I can't be terminated while I'm out. That's actually not true. You can't be terminated because of the FMLA leave, but if you were going to be separated from employment anyway, that's legal. Um, You know, give an example where let's say an employer was going through a reduction in force and it was scheduled to take place uh, you know, February 1st. Well, if you get in a car and you were selected, you might not know about it yet, but let's say you're in a car accident the week before and you have to go out on FMLA leave, that does not all of a sudden change the fact that the employer 
had already selected you for the reduction in force and they can terminate your employment. So you don't get the protection in that case. Okay. So yeah, if a, like a big employer like GE is going to do a layoff and they're laying off 100, 200 employees, let's say on December 1st, and you start your FMLA leave on November 1st, it's not like you're protected against being laid off. No, that's correct. Now, I certainly have had situations where it appears that the employer uh, is sort of coming up with something. And I'll give you an example. I, I had a, uh, a client once who was out on FMLA leave and the employer really did not want him to come back. Uh, and when he tried to come back a couple of months later, you know, they required a medical certification, which the employer can do. He got that completed. And then they said, well, we need more clarification. Uh, we're not so sure you can really perform the essential functions of the job. And so uh, he went back and got more clarification. And it was really clear that the employee had been cleared by his doctor to return to work. And so once that happened, they called him and said, hey, you're right, you're cleared to return to work, but we forgot, just so happens, you were part of a reduction in force a couple of months ago, and we just forgot <laughs> to tell you because you were out on leave. They didn't want him back. They didn't want him right? back. So it's illegal for an employer not to return you after your FMLA leave unless you would have otherwise Correct. been laid off, basically. Correct. Or maybe if they discover something, I guess, theoretically, you could be out on FMLA leave and they discover that you stole something before the FMLA leave, they can still take disciplinary action if they didn't know of it before the FMLA leave, I suppose. That's true. And that's actually something that you run into relatively con You don't typically run into a legitimate situation where they discovered a bunch of stuff that would warrant the person's termination. But when I, a lot of, t a lot of FMLA cases that I work on, you will get one of the defenses or one of the responses is, well, when this person was out on FMLA leave, it turns out that we discovered that they really weren't doing a very good job. And there's all these examples of that. What else is illegal under the FMLA, aside from terminating somebody for being out on leave? So under the FMLA, there's interference and there's retaliation. Interference is illegal that would be something along the lines of the person's out for surgery, they come back, they want to schedule these medical appointments, and the employer says, look, we just can't deal with you scheduling appointments during the work, during the work day. You got to do it on the weekend. That would be interference. They have to allow for that. Um, yep. Retaliation, you can't be retaliated against for having taken the FMLA leave. Obviously, the biggie is termination. You can't be terminated for having taken it. You can't be demoted, uh, but the biggie is termination. How about like these employers that have attendance policies? Can they use your absences against you in any way, like these no-fault attendance policies? Yeah, they cannot. Um, and that's actually something that you see or that I've seen uh, quite a bit, which is where somebody's on intermittent leave because continuous leave, it's pretty easy to track. So employers aren't going to screw that up. But I do see where somebody's got intermittent leave and then they get terminated for absenteeism and you start 
in looking into it, and it's pretty clear that, you know, some or half of the absences were really FMLA-covered absences. And you point that out to the employer, and there tends to be some back and forth. But um, one of the unique things about the FMLA is, as an employment lawyer, when you're trying to represent somebody who's been terminated from a job, one of the first things you'd like to be able to do is just get them their job back. As a practical matter, that just doesn't ever happen. But the few times that I've had that happen over the course of my career were FMLA cases where it was very clear that the employer had used, intentionally or not, because it doesn't matter whether it's intentional, it was very clear that they had counted FMLA-covered absences against the person when they terminated them for absenteeism. And once that became clear, they realized this is not a winnable case. We're just going to litigate it for two years, ultimately <laughs> lose. Then we have to pay their fees. Let's just bring the person back. And I've seen that happen a few times. You don't see that in any other context, or I haven't. Well, you've mentioned a few examples here of cases you've had. How common is it for people that call your office to talk about FMLA issues? Is this something that happens, you know, once in a blue moon, or is this fairly common? Um, it's common. It's not as common as people calling when they've been uh, terminated. So I don't have a lot of current employees calling when they think that their FMLA is not being handled uh, correctly. Um, you know, and they probably should. Right. What's your prediction, John? You know, most industrialized countries, you know, most European countries have paid FMLA leave. Do you think we'll ever see that in the United States? There's certainly some movement toward it. Uh, there's a lot of opposition to it from employer groups. What do you think? you think we'll ever see paid employment leave? I know you've got that look on your face where you're thinking. I think it I depends like a lot on the election. The, the, I, I think it, I, I like to watch your brain operating in there. I can see the wheels turning. You think if the uh, if there's a Democratic administration, uh, we're going to see paid FMLA leave? Much more likely, yeah. Okay. You know, one of the other, I was just going to say this before we move on. One of the other things that you see with the FMLA uh, when employees come in is you will see not only absences counted against them that shouldn't have been, but, you know, in terms of a termination decision, but you'll also see it in performance evaluations, which is a little bit surprising that that kind of makes it through the process of the evaluation. But you'll see performance evaluations where somebody, ha there's comments that say, you did a great job this year, but, you know, you missed a fair amount of time and that impacted your performance. Therefore, I can't give you a five. I got to give you a four. And somehow that makes it through HR because let's say the only absence the person had was for a pregnancy. Well, you can't count that against them, but you do see that. Yeah, that's nah, baby, nah. You cannot yeah. use these absences against people in performance reviews, right? Correct. So people should be on the lookout for that when they go out on FMLA leave and make sure they don't get dinged in the category of attendance or anything like that. Now, we talk about pay and the fact that the FMLA does not require your employer to pay you. Yeah, and you've talked about you can use your PTO, your vacation, et cetera. What about employee benefits? You're not being paid. What about your health insurance, things like that? Right. So your health insurance has to stay in place 
while you're out on FMLA leave, you're still responsible for your portion of the premium. I think sometimes you can delay when you when you have to pay that, but you are still responsible for your portion of the premium. But the health insurance does have to stay in place. Now, you mentioned earlier the phrase serious health condition. I forget in what context you talked about that. Um, what is a serious health condition? So you, you can't just take FMLA leave uh, because you've got a one-day flu. Um, how sick do you need to be in order to take advantage of the FMLA? Right. So I'll kind of read you what the statute says and then try to explain it, you know, because the statute kind of gets into the weeds. Um, but but it is. It, yeah, to, we don't like to get into the weeds on this podcast. That's right. You know? So if you, and this is true for both the FMLA and the disability laws, you, you know, you don't necessarily want to get too hung up on what the definition is. Uh, you might want to rely on your lawyer for that. But uh, as a practical matter, um, you know, an overnight stay at a hospital for some reason is going to be covered. Um, a period of incapacity for three calendar days from work while you're being treated by a physician, maybe for like pneumonia, something like that, that's going to be covered. Pregnancy is going to be covered. Any period of incapacity related to a chronic serious health condition. So for example, you know, you're, you're, you're getting radiation treatments. Those are going to be covered for, you know, for cancer. Uh, those are the types of things that are going to be covered. And I will stay away from reading the definition from the FMLA unless you really want me to read it. I really don't, John. Okay. I didn't think I you mean, would. I mean, I think we've beat the, the uh, FMLA here to death. Let's move on to the Americans with Disabilities Act, which we'll just refer to as the ADA. What uh, does the ADA require and what kind of protections do employees have? So there's two basic responsibilities under the ADA. The employer is not allowed to discriminate against somebody because they have a disability. Um, you know, that could be demotion, treating them different, termination, and then an employer has to grant a reasonable accommodation to allow an employee to be able to continue uh, to or to do the job. Well, what in the world is a disability? I mean, I think people think that you have to be in a wheelchair or some obvious disability from our youth. Has, has there been any kind of definition to guide employees or employers on exactly what is a disability that's covered under the ADA? Yes. So a disability is a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits uh, one or more major life activities, a record of such impairment or being regarded as having an impairment. Major life activities are what you would think they are, walking, seeing, hearing, speaking, uh, learning, caring for oneself, performing manual tasks, and working. Now, I want to go back. Um, you don't actually have to have a disability to be covered. As I mentioned earlier in the definition, if you're regarded as, meaning if, if an employer thinks that you have an impairment that substantially limits you, and they take some employment action, you would have a, a regarded as claim 
under the uh, under the ADA, um, but more commonly, um, you know, you see situations where an employer is treating somebody who actually has a disability differently. Okay. And do you have uh, job protection if you have a if you're employed by somebody and you have a disability? Do you have job protection? You do have job protection. It is not absolute. You have to be able to show that you're qualified. The definition of qualified is you can do the job with or without an accommodation. And what that really means is if the employer can't do anything, the employee put, can't if do the employee, anything. No, if the employer can't do anything to put you in a position where you can do the essential functions of the job, you're not going to have protection. If there's, if there's just no way to make it work, you're not going to have protection. So they, they've got to look for ways whereby you can keep your job and and manage your disability at the same time. Right. The way that works is the if if you're an employee and you've got an impairment and you think that there is something that the employer could do to allow you to perform your job or better perform your job, then you go and you make a request for a reasonable accommodation. And basically what you're doing is you're going to human resource, doesn't have to be human resources, but that usually is going to be the best place to go. And you say, this is the issue that I'm having. And you make a request. It could be, uh, you mentioned somebody in a wheelchair. I, I'm in my wheelchair. I can't push up to my desk. It's it's limiting my ability to get to my computer, all of that stuff. And essentially you're asking for an accommodation, which is pretty simple. Let's adjust the desk so I can can work there in my wheelchair. Could be somebody who has got some medical appointments uh, related to a disability and they need, you know, some time. They need their schedule adjusted. It could be something like that. You go to HR and say, hey, you know, if I could just start an hour later and stay an hour later, that's probably going to be something that the employer, uh, you know, has to do. Now, the employer does not have to accept what the employee is asking for in terms of an accommodation, uh, but you know they can. But the employer does have to what's called engage in the interactive process. The interactive process is where the employee and the employer work together to figure out an accommodation that can work. Well, how much money does an employer have to have to spend? You know, uh, you got a mom and pop store. Are there different obligations to reasonably accommodate depending upon the size of the business, for example? You have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it, it, it is going to be a case-by-case basis. So if, if there, an employer has to grant an accommodation unless it would be an undue hardship. Undue hardship is essentially it's way too difficult or it's way too costly. What's way too difficult, what's way too costly is going to depend on, as you were saying, the size of the employer, their capabilities, it, and it really is going to be a case-by-case basis. There's no bright-line rule as to what's going to be too difficult or what's going to be too costly. You know, that really reminded me of a case I had like in the mid-90s. You know, we see all these access ramps for people with wheelchairs. I once had a case, this is like mind-boggling. 
today. I once had a case for an employee at Wendy's who was in a wheelchair, and they did not have one of those ramps, like on their sidewalk, you know, with the concrete, the little thing. And their defense was, that's too doggone expensive. And we said, nah, baby, nah, you know, look around. And you're Wendy's, right? You're Dave Thomas. You need to do that. Right. They ultimately did it. Right. But they actually fought it. Now, that was 1994, 1995. It was just after the ADA and a bunch of these employers were complaining about everybody's going to have a disability. Everybody's going to be filing ADA claims. This is going to be the death of the American workforce. I don't think it has, right? We have more employees, I think, these days, and we probably have a lot of employees with disabilities successfully working at their jobs. Right. I think the more diversity, the better the workforce, including people with disabilities. Now, we talked about the paperwork sometimes that an employer can require for the FMLA. Does your request for an accommodation have to be in writing? Is there a form? It doesn't. Uh, You know, what I would recommend, this is what I tell people to do, and maybe others tell them to do something different. I, I say go in to human resources, you know, and have the conversation about what you're requesting. And then you can just follow up with a short email that says something along the lines of, thank you for meeting with me today to discuss my request for an accommodation. You don't really need to get more complicated than that, because that way, at least you've got proof that you've made a request. You've engaged in that protected activity. So explain this interactive process a little bit more. Um, What the heck does that mean? An employer has to talk to you? Do they, what do they need to do? So if you make a request for um, an accommodation that makes sense to you, the employer doesn't have to agree and can offer you something different. You also do not have to agree and then can propose something different than that. Um, You know, I'm kind of blanking on thinking of a specific example, but essentially both parties have to engage in this process to come up with something that can work. And certainly if, if the employer... And the employee, I think, but if the employer doesn't in good faith interact and they just say, look, we're not going to be able to make it work, you're fired, you know, you'd have uh, a claim for failure to accommodate, uh, you know, under the disability laws. Um, And again, it is going to be a case-by-case basis whether or not an employer has engaged in good faith in that interactive process and tried to come up with something that makes sense that can work so that an employee has a reasonable accommodation and can continue to work. Um, Yeah. Right. So we talked about the FMLA and how common they are. How common is it for people to come into your office uh, with some kind of ADA issue, either discrimination because they have a disability or a failure to accommodate? It's not as common as it should be. You know, people tend to come into our office once they have been fired and lost their job. You don't see people coming in as often as they should when they've when they've got questions about whether their FMLA is being handled appropriately, whether their uh, re- request for an accommodation is being handled appropriately, whether there was a failure to hire and and uh, they didn't get a job they should have. You don't see people coming in as often as they should. They tend to only think about their employment rights once they've completely lost their job, but they don't think about them as as often as they should, or at least they don't think about calling a lawyer as often as they should 
while they're in the process, which is a really good idea because you can, you know, when you're still employed and you have some ability to fix the situation, complain about the situation, do something while you're still there, that's when you want to do it. That's when you want to talk to a lawyer and figure out what are my rights here? What can I do? What are they supposed to do? Uh, you just don't see people calling as much as they should during that time frame. And sometimes you'll see people who say, I just got so frustrated, I resigned, and now I'm coming to you. What can I do? <laughs> and that's a huge mistake. Yeah. Huge mistake. Yeah. If, if you've got a problem with your employer and you're thinking about resigning and you don't think there's a good reason to resign and you think it's because of something that your employer is doing to you. The worst mistake you can make. Yeah. You need to call somebody. Yep. I mean, it's just a little bit of education will go a long way. Uh, now, you talked about the fact that a request for accommodation do not have to be in writing. Uh, but do you have a recommendation as to whether the request should be in writing or not? Yeah, I, I, I think you should follow up with an email after you've had your meeting you, and then you follow up with an email. I don't think you need to put everything in the email, but something along the lines of, Thanks for meeting with me today about my request for an accommodation. Please let me know where you where you know what the result is. Why should you do that? Why do you need to put it in writing if you've gone there and talked to your boss? You certainly if you ever get to the point where you have to be in litigation, you're always going to be better off or even if you're just talking to a lawyer later on, you always want to be in a position where you can demonstrate that you did what you were supposed to do, which is request the accommodation, request the FMLA leave. You never want to have an employer be able to, to mount the defense that the person never asked for anything. Okay, we found out that the person's chair was uncomfortable, we, but they never said, hey, you know, I've got this, you know, situation where uh, it's, you know, I, I need a reasonable accommodation. I'm in a wheelchair. I can't, I can't, you know, work at this desk. I need it moved. You know, we never got anything that would amount to a request for an accommodation that might be covered under, you know, some law. So, you know, it's not our fault. It's their fault. You got to create a paper trail. Yeah. Now, John Allison, what does email stand for? Electronic mail. No. No. You failed the test today, John. We've been talking. I failed. And email came out of my list. Email lifetime. stands for evidence mail. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. If you're having a problem with your employer and you don't necessarily trust your boss, put it in an email That's to funny. confirm. It's a paper trail. It's evidence mail. I know. Not we, electronic mail. We get those trainings on a monthly basis, but just like everybody else, I kind of click through the training and don't really read any of it. Evidence yeah, mail. that's the problem. Evidence mail. Evidence mail. I've also signed away all my rights as far as non-compete and arbitration and all that stuff too. Exactly. Without knowing it. Exactly. Okay. We said we'd talk about workers' comp law. I know you're not a workers' comp lawyer. You know, there's people out there like Ed Ehlers, uh, Jim Crowley, folks like that that do uh, workers' comp law every day of the week. This is one area that you are not a specialist in. Is that correct? Let's verify that. Yes. If somebody gets injured on the job, should they call you or should they call Jim Crowley? They should not call me. They should call Jim Crowley. Okay. So with respect to workers' comp law, how can you help people? Okay. Um, so... 
you've got lawyers that specialize in handling the workers' comp claim, which is people getting the benefits for their injury if they've been injured at work. That's something that other people do. That's a discreet specialty. These guys do it all the time. Right. right. Correct. Correct. Uh, if you are terminated from your job because you've pursued a workers' comp claim, that's where employment lawyers like me are of assistance, right? So we would we tend to, well, we help people if they've been terminated from their job in connection with um, uh, a workers' comp issue. Um, it, it, one of the things about workers' comp that's really important to know is the, the statute of limitations, the time frame, is really, really short. Something we didn't talk about with the other laws. FMLA, you got two years to do anything, okay? Uh, disability laws, you've got 300 days to file an EEOC charge. You've got six years to file something. There's, there, there's these longer statute of limitations. Um, under Ohio law, you need to notify the employer within 90 days of having been terminated and then you need to file a lawsuit within 180 or you lose your right to pursue it. So that's really important for people to know how short that time frame is. Okay. Anything else about workers' comp, John? You're not really a workers' comp expert other than representing people who get fired because they file a claim. That's correct. All right. They should call. They can look in the legal uh, publications or I guess in the yellow pages doesn't exist anymore, but they can Google workers' compensation lawyer if they want to find a workers' compensation lawyer in Ohio or Kentucky, but any other employment problem they have on the job, that's you, John yep. Allison. Is that correct? That is correct. All right. Well, John, this has been a lot of fun. It's, it's kind of a, you know, I think medical issues are like the most complicated because you got no possible doubt. workers' comp claims, you got FMLA. You've got ADA, you've got short-term disability, sometimes long-term disability. You've got that law called ERISA that Liza Newman is a specialist in. You've got intentional torts. Intentional torts. I mean, it really is. I mean, people, yeah. that, and there's more and more people, for one reason or another, seem like they're getting sick in our society or disabled or having medical problems. So I think this has been really helpful today, John. I'm glad you came in. Thanks for having me. And uh, get back to work. Go help somebody who needs help medically on the job. Refer them to a doctor for their medical issues, but you can help them with their job issues. So thanks again for coming in today. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this episode of Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you're a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'll tune in next time when we explore more about working. I want to conclude this episode from Studs Turkle that I find valuable. Quote, work is about a search for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than apathy. In short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying, unquote. Let's hope that we can all find daily meaning as well as daily bread and recognition as well as monetary benefits. See you next time on Freaking Out About Work 
And please spread the word if you have enjoyed this podcast. Tell your friends how easy it is to go to freakingoutabout.com. And freaking out about is all one word. Thank you, everyone.